Miles Nelly. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 393. Jason Lingren is with me, and we have a guest by the name of Nachiketa. He's coming to us from Goa, India. And if I had to try to frame up where we're going, maybe it's a story of awakening or something like that. Welcome, Jason. And a stuffy good morning it is. How would you cliff note what we're about to do here? Yeah, that's it's quite the journey. I, I'm not sure how I would describe it exactly. It's interesting to say the least. So basically what we're going to do is we're going to go through Nachiketa's lifetime. Um, it's a heck of a a heck of a journey, to say the least, uh, to where he is now in Goa, India, which we will get to. But as I went through the notes we put together, um, and I always think it's important to get a point of view from varying parts of the world, since we're not really traveling, bigotry is at an all-time high because traveling kills big bigotry, at least in most of us. Um, so what we'll do is we'll walk through here, and I guess it really kind of is a story of at what point do you catch on, kind of. Anyhow, welcome, Nachiketa. Thank you for having me, Jason and Pro. You want to jump in verbatim on the bullet points here? Do you want to add anything before we jump in? No, not really. I think we can just kind of run with what we got. All right. Well, let's start out in your early childhood. This is truly going to be a path to everyone listening, and it's always good to hear these tales. You can compare them to what journey you've taken. So let's start out in your early childhood. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, so I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and uh, I grew up there, uh, kind of bounced around from uh, one place to another. Uh, when I met my biological aunt, my father's youngest sister, she told me that I must have lived over 100 different places before I was adopted to America. So did you know your biological parents? I knew of my father. Uh, my father was with me mm, kind of on and off uh, when I was growing up, but I didn't see him consistently. And I was told that my biological mother left soon after I was born. Were you immediately an orphan? No, not really. Uh, I was uh, orphaned after the death of my father uh, around eight. What happened was that uh, after being bounced around, uh, I was with my uncle and his family and uh he basically informed me that my father had passed and I didn't really want to express any kind of emotions to it, but um, I was trying to process what was going on. And, and afterwards, uh, I decided to run away from the family. And that's how I ended up living out in the streets. How old were you when you started to live in the streets? I was uh, about eight and a half around there, maybe a little bit more between eight and a half and a nine. Yes. You must have been in Seoul, Korea, because that would be a hard thing to do in this country. Someone would probably pick you up. Yes, uh, I was uh, in a city. I, was, I, I wasn't sure if it was uh, Seoul or somewhere, but it was definitely an urban environment. So at some point, you get yourself into an orphanage. Are you collected off the streets or do you migrate there? How do you get into the orphanage? Well, uh, I spent several months out in the streets, uh, you know, stealing or doing whatever I needed to do to survive. And uh, I was begging out in the streets one day uh, to one of those gentlemen who wash or not wash, but uh, they shine shoes, they repair shoes. They're out in the streets uh, doing uh, shoe repair. And uh, he went into a store and bought a carton of milk and um, uh, bread for me. And, and he proceeded to hand that to me. Uh, and I was very excited, of course, and I was ready to, uh, you know, receive this uh, gift. But uh, he ended up grabbing me by the wrist and dragged me to the police station. And from the police station, 
they sent me to kind of a juvenile jail uh, type place where I stayed for about two weeks. And then from there, I went to an orphanage. Wow. So I should tell, I've been to South Korea twice, once as a roadie and once as a Marine. And one thing is it's very strict. Society is very strict when you compare it to the United States. And one of the things I noticed is the stratification of society is very rigid compared to the way we live. So I'm guessing being an orphan uh, in a South Korean city way back then would have been lowest of the low. Yeah, I mean, you know, I wasn't really well educated uh, growing up, uh, as you can imagine, just being bounced around from one place to another. And by the time I got to the orphanage, that's the only stable place that I'd been while I was growing up. And I actually went to school. And when I went to school, uh, I think I was in fifth grade or so at that time. And I didn't know how to add. I didn't know how to multiply. I didn't know how to do any of the mathematics. And they thought I was uh, really stupid. So they kind of relegated me to the back corner and let me kind of look out the window <laughs> and do my thing. And But uh, uh, I would say you're very accurate in the, ter- in the sense that Korea is, uh, you know, Confucius country. You know, they follow hierarchy and they're very strict about their rules. When I was there and I, and, you know, I stood out like a sore thumb. Uh, I had long hair. I was wearing shorts and boots like a roadie would in Southern California. And when you meet in a group for the first time, the first things that happened, and I noticed this across the board, is they determine who's got seniority in the group. They determine how old you are as one measure. They determine if you're married. Uh, they do all these things to figure out quickly who gets the most respect. And that's even carried over into the societal things that you do. Like one thing is I happened to be the oldest in the group of young men who was on my roadie crew to do a world of dinosaur show in Tegu, but I wasn't allowed to pour a drink. As a matter of fact, a couple of times I went to, and everyone was like horrified. (laughs) And the other thing is when they pour you a drink, they put their left hand under the forearm of the right hand pouring the drink, which is also a sign of respect. But if I remember correctly, age would have bumped you up in the respect column being married. Um, I forget the other things, but was it like that when you were there? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, age is very important. Uh, even one year difference uh, is enough of a difference to create a hierarchy. And uh, in Korea, they say that one year is the hardest difference because uh, sometimes people kind of confuse themselves uh, being how old they are just because it's one year different, but it's enough to um, establish some kind of hierarchy. I think status, uh, amount of money, uh, how much, where you live, all these kind of things, anything that's measurable, really, uh, people, um, you know, account, account towards this respect thing. <laughs> all right. So as we're going to get into the orphan, uh, orphan, oh, there's one more thing I can add about South Korea. Um, it, one year does make a difference as they count as your age. When, when we were all counting age, I didn't realize at first that they count the time in the womb as basically a year or close to a year. Um, And that's also far away from where we are. In other words, their hierarchy goes back to a time when they still recognize that life is granted to you at the zygote. So while you're in the womb, they're counting lifetime. But let's get up. So you get into the orphanage. Where do things go from there? So I was in a room of maybe about nine children. I was the oldest in my room. So I was about nine uh, at the time maybe nine and a half uh, around there. And uh, uh, everybody else uh, had to be under me. 
each room had a teacher, but uh, my teacher really didn't hang out with us too much. And uh, I had to kind of take responsibility for the room. And I had to be very strict myself because if other children were not behaving uh, in the way that was expected, everybody got punished. Uh, so uh, I had to kind of run a tight ship. And this is still in South Korea? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So at some point um, in the orphanage, adoption becomes a possibility. By the way, you and I share this. I was born and immediately orphaned, um, but it was a planned orphan orphan making, whatever it's called. And uh, I was fortunate to be adopted by the parents that did get me. But it's so strange how these things happen because the only two things that the birth mother could pass on was whether I could find her and what religion I was to be brought up. So almost solely on the idea that I was to be brought up Lutheran is how I ended up being adopted. So what's the story for you? How does it go down? So I was in the orphanage for about a year, year and a half. And uh, uh, the story that I was told is that I was selected maybe out of two or three uh, children who were around the same age. And as far as uh, I've been told, um, there is a kind of a statute of limitation on how old the parents can be compared to the child. And the limit was 45 years difference. So when I was 10, my parents were 55. And that's part of the reason why I was chosen because I was uh, uh, the right age group. And of course, I'm not sure what other uh, factors that were involved, why I was chosen compared to the other kids, but uh, that's uh, what I've been told. So if I was to look at you in the streets, would you appear Korean? Yes, I, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I'm Asian. Okay. So basically you're Korean by descent and an American family is now moving to adopt you. Yes, correct. And so is the plan that they're going to adopt you in Seoul and bring you to America or is it the other way around? Do they send you to America to be adopted? Well, um, they work through an organization in Wisconsin. That's where I grew up. And so uh, what they did, and this is something that was quite common, which it was that uh, they um, there were a lot of um, women in Korea and South Korea at that time who wanted to leave Korea and come to America to make a new life. So uh, the, the agency would provide them with a plane ticket and their work was to um, carry me and uh, maybe even a baby with me. There was a baby that was also adopted. And this uh, young Korean lady took us from the airport uh, in Korea to Japan. And from Japan, I think we flew to Chicago. And at Chicago airport, I met my parents, uh, my sisters. I think my brother was there. For the first time? For the very first time. This is the first time we met in person. They've seen my photos. I've seen their photos, but we have never physically met before. So uh, they welcomed me at the uh, airport, O'Hara Airport, and uh, they drove from uh, Chicago Airport back to uh, Wisconsin. Ripon, Wisconsin is where I grew up, small town in uh, Wisconsin. Boy, that is a long way from Seoul, Korea. So I guess I have two questions. Do you speak English when you leave Korea and arrive in Chicago? Let's take that one. Well, <laughs> I, I spoke five words. Uh, they taught me yes, no, thank you, welcome. And the fifth word they taught me was called uh, it's bowel movement for using the bathroom. They were very concerned about being respectful. And they chose to teach me this word because it was a kind of a clinical term. And they thought maybe it was a, a very respectful way of saying that I needed to use the bathroom. So there were a lot of times when I was younger 
when I needed to use the bathroom where I would be yelling out bowel movement, bowel movement (laughs) (laughs) as a way of saying that I needed to use the bathroom. Of course, I quickly learned that uh, uh, the John or the bathroom was uh, quite all right. (laughs) You and I have another thing in common as I'm going through the points. My father, the father who adopted me or my father, the only father I've ever known, uh, was also a professor, a PhD that, that taught at university. But Jason, do you want to get in before we move out of this first grouping? How did you feel being in America? What was the uh, overwhelming sense of difference? Or at least that's what I'm guessing. What did it feel like to you? I felt very excited. And I felt um, it was kind of an opportunity that uh, I was dreaming of having. And I know, uh, I mean, the orphanage I was at, there were maybe about 150, maybe up to even 200 children there. And every time a, you know, a foreign couple would come, to uh, take a look at the children, every child would just run up to them and wanted to get hugs from them. And, and it was kind of a dream for a lot of children to be adopted and, um, you know, go to a loving family. And, you know, there was a sense of excitement and a sense of kind of something new and different. You know, it was a, a surreal feeling, I can say. Uh, that's something that I was experiencing at that moment. What decade, if you don't mind me asking, was America still perceived as the latest and the greatest in the decade that we're talking about? I was uh, adopted in 1989 in June. So yeah, at that point, America was still mostly perceived as the great white castle on the hill. Little did we know. All right. So after the adoption, you're growing up in America. Your father, too, is a professor. Let's pick up there. Yes, uh, my father uh, graduated from Yale on a scholarship. He's uh, very intelligent. And, uh, and that was back in the 1950s, uh, I believe, when you know, <laughs> going to Yale kind of still mattered uh, before George W. Bush and everything. And uh, he became a professor of economics at Ripon College, a uh, small college, about 800 students in southern eastern part of Wisconsin. So... I guess I should have, before we do this, so your father's a professor, so I'm guessing um, almost immediately when you get to Wisconsin, you're learning English, I'm guessing. Yeah, uh, we, (laughs) of course, I didn't, uh, they they provided me with a picture uh, dictionary at the beginning, uh, so I used that quite often to try to translate some of the words I wanted to um, communicate. Uh, We took a quick trip to Washington and Oregon and part of California, but then uh, right afterwards, I had private schooling uh, with a, a teacher, uh, a neighbor of ours. Uh, she taught me uh, first, second, third, fourth grade English. Like we basically just ran through that as quickly as possible during the summer so that I can be somewhat prepared to go to school in September. Did you maintain the ability to speak and write Korean or had you never learned how to write in Korean? Uh, I was uh, illiterate uh, <laughs> in, in Korea because uh, I didn't go to school properly. I spoke Korean. Uh, I knew a little bit. My handwriting was horrible. My uh, Everything was bad. I didn't, I didn't get a proper education. But over time, I actually had lost my ability to uh, uh, write and read and speak Korean. All right. So we're going to burn through a couple more backstory points here, and then we're going to get into the awakening process. So you go through school. Is there anything notable or are we going to jump straight to university? Well, I mean, you know, uh, just growing up in small Ripon, Wisconsin, uh, I was definitely different. 99.9% of the population was white. So I had experienced uh, being different, <laughs> you know. Bigotry? Do you mean bigotry? Well, I mean, you know, like people notice you. 
people uh, notice that you're different, <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, yep. and, and, and I really had to uh, try to behave. Of course, I had a lot of uh, anger issues. And that kind of stemmed from uh, stuff that had happened to me in Korea uh, when I was even younger, but just being different and uh, getting bullied or getting picked on, these type of things uh, also you know, contributed to that. But um, because my father was respected and he was a professor, um, uh, I always felt that I needed to you know, behave uh, properly in town and anywhere else. And, uh, and I try to maintain that as much as possible, even though I was not perfect in any way. <laughs> so you actually work your way up to university. AmeriCorps is, is AmeriCorps like, uh, like, um, Peace Corps. Yeah. Peace Corps. Yep. Yeah. It's kind of like peace. Peace Corps. It's like a two, two, uh, year deal. And usually at a foreign country, uh, I went into AmeriCorps because, uh, my first year, my freshman year at university, I drank quite a bit and they actually booted me from the school. So I was not uh, allowed to come back, uh, for a year. So I had to take a little break. And uh, during that time, I decided to do AmeriCorps in New York, upstate New York in the Adirondacks. And, uh, you know, it was a good experience. Uh, it was a good way to uh, be in nature and kind of figure out what I wanted to get into when I went back to school. So if I had to kind of summarize my life compared to your life, there's a point where you've learned how to work within the system. So what school does, teaches you how to get along in the system doesn't teach you anything about the system, but you go, you party too much. They boot you AmeriCorps, which is for a lot of young people to snap them back into line. Um, it has been used. Peace Corps has been used in that way, kind of like military boot camp for some, but you get back into the university and this is where you start to find your path because you achieve a BFA in sculpture. Yes. Uh, I found that I liked uh, drawing. And uh, when I went to university, I started to get into sculpture. And that's something that I could do for many hours. I enjoyed doing. Um, I was not very good at sitting and learning about stuff that I was not really interested in. Uh, I had to kind of go towards the things that I was uh, uh, interested in doing. So I decided to major in art. And, you know, my father supported me uh, during this process. So uh, it was okay that uh, I majored in sculpture. I don't know if you feel the way I do, but I feel so fortunate uh, that my father was a well-educated individual because if I had to, like, if I asked you, what is the greatest gift do you think your father gave you besides pulling you off the streets? I mean, living experience that your father gave you. Oh my goodness. I mean, there's so many things that I'm very grateful for. I mean, <laughs> it's really hard to say, but I, I would say one of the greatest gifts that he has given me is teaching me how to be a man, you know, teaching me how to be a responsible human being. Uh, even though we, our views may not uh, be always aligned and it's okay. I think that's uh, quite common between family members, but uh, being responsible and being a man of one's word, I think these are the things that my father has taught me. Hmm. If I had to answer that question, I would say my father told me the value of doing what's right. And he instilled in me how not to be so gullible. But Jason, were you going to jump in there? It sounds like he instilled in you a sense of honor, which is something that would be very important from the culture you came from. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I can't say that I have always been very honorable, but uh, growing up and kind of coming to our own being, honor becomes a very important concept for everybody. You know, it's, it's the kind of how one views oneself. All right. Well, let's clear up the last bullet point, and then we're going to get into the awakening process. And for so many people that I've met and spoken with, travel often becomes a big part 
of the awakening process. But in the case where there hasn't been that much travel for like individuals never left the state they're in, events end up being a big part of it. So after you get your BFA in sculpture, sculpture, you end up going back to Korea a number of times and you own a bar and hold many different jobs. Are you speaking Korean at that point? Uh, no, I, I went back to Korea uh, during the summer between my um, junior year um, and uh, senior year. And I was learning Korean. And at that time, I uh, met some people, uh, was trying to learn Korean. Um, I uh, will have to admit that I was quite uh, a heavy drinker. And so after I finished university, I wanted to go back to Korea. I wanted to see what my history was. I wanted to know more about it because like during that time, the three months I was there uh, between my junior and senior year, I met my biological aunt who told me about my history and my family and where I come from and all this. So uh, that really enlightened me about like why I became an orphan and how it all happened. So <laughs> it, it was a big I don't know. It was uh, it was a very big experience for me. You know, uh, the things that I walked away with when I had gone to Korea twice, once in the military, once as a free person, semi-free, uh, was the food culture uh, that I didn't even comprehend at the time. But later, I realized that this is an ancient culture that gets overlooked all the time. And not only are they recognizing that they get life at the zygote, which is a big, big deal. How old was I by the time I caught on? Way too old. But their food culture is designed to make healthy, intelligent individuals. Most people are unaware that in Korea, there's even a color coding that goes through the food. And if you know that you've gotten each color, that you've gotten a complete meal, but do you have any insight into the way that they still eat in Korea? The reason I'm bringing that up is because I'm guessing they're not too far from McDonald's like the rest of the world. Well, uh, I kind of had to relearn the culture when I went back to Korea. But what I remember is a lot of side dishes. Uh, they like to uh, share a pot of soup like kimchi jjigae or doenjang jjigae. And everybody's got their own rice uh, bowl in front of them and chopsticks uh, and spoon is quite normal. So uh, sharing and eating is a very important part of Korea, especially after the war. A lot of people did not eat you know, regularly or very well. So even in some places down in like Busan, uh, to say like, have you eaten is a form of greeting. Oh, I actually remember that. I, I remember that when I was taught how to greet people and they told me what it had meant. And that's where I started to put it together. Um, one of my favorite Korean soups is Dok Gai Jang. It's probably a little too hot for most people. Um, but the food culture there fascinates me because I've wondered if it will be harder for the world evolution to infringe on their health through food as easily as it has been for everywhere else. It's just an open question. I would not know how to answer that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you want to pull us in, Jason? We're going to start doing the awakening process. So here's the fun part, I guess, uh, Nachiketa. You're going to start traveling the world. Yes. Yes, I'm traveling the world. But uh, um, I would say my... Uh, Initial awakening process happened after 9-11. And I think it's very important to kind of uh, talk about that a little bit, uh, just because I was like 21 at the time, I think uh, that happened, maybe a little bit more, maybe 23, something, but something didn't sit well with me uh, after that event. And I remember going through Kmart and, you know, this was maybe one or two weeks after 9-11 and they had a magazine 
describing how the towers, they theorize how the towers went down. And it fit almost like exactly as the NIST report. And later on, I uh, come to the realization that it was all a farce. It was all poppycock and that the buildings could not have come down the way they have explained. And that started to really make me question about many other things that I thought I knew or I've been taught and whatnot. And that got me into the world of conspiracy. So at, at that age, so, you know, the, the internet's still pretty new when that goes down. I was still holding a job at my first tech job. The degree I got was the first internet tech de- degree offered in the country. And I'd only been working. So, you know, I lost almost two years before I got into the workforce uh, working on the degree. And um, not, not everything, most people forget by that period, not everything had switched to online. The online was still like a wild west. So way back then, that's when you started jumping online and looking at the conspiratorial ideas. I would say maybe closer to 25 or 26 because uh, I graduated from university quite late. Uh, I changed my major from uh, psychology to art. And so it took me another year to get out. And I was already a little bit behind in school. My parents uh, held me back one year. So by the time I graduated, I was 25. And right after I graduated, I spent a little bit of time with my family and decided to go back to South Korea. So once I went back to South Korea, I started to do more and more research uh, while I was teaching English. And one of the first videos I remember watching was about like the Money Masters by Ben Ben Stills, I believe. And uh, uh, that also helped me to wake up to a lot of the conspiracies uh, involved. But 9-11, there were a lot of uh, videos that were kind of uh, starting to come out. Uh, That was back in 2004. Uh, especially about like uh, the engineers and uh, architects uh, signing, you know, uh, papers saying that the buildings could not have come down the way they explained it in the NIST report. That's funny. When I was living in uh, California, there was a city called Lemon Grove. I think it must have been about 2004. There was a guy, clearly Middle Eastern, had the beard, had the regalia, you know, the long flowing white robes, and he used to go down on the main drag with this huge sign that said 9-11 was an inside job. And I never thought of it then, but can you imagine the huevos rancheros on that guy to go into the city that he was in, in San Diego, looking the way he did because they were being defamed and try to tell the truth. But um, so where does it go from there? Uh, You're starting to catch on that the world's not what you thought it was. Yeah, I mean, you know, I you still have to live life. I was teaching English and um, that was, you know, whatever I made, I spent basically. And I was still kind of uh, figuring out what's going on with my history. But, um, you know, and I was also getting involved with Ultimate Frisbee uh, with a team there. But uh, on my free time, I would just look into different uh, conspiracy theories. And, you know, I was reading uh, David Icke books. Um, <laughs> so uh, little by little, I'm trying to uncover this whole uh, thing. And, um, and and there's a lot, of course, everybody knows there's a whole um, mountain full of uh, conspiracies and uh, alternate histories and stuff. But yeah, just little by little, I was chipping away uh, while I was in Korea. Did you uh, discuss any of this with your family? I tried. I tried. Uh, but uh, it was very difficult. At the beginning, I would say that maybe my family thought it was a little bit cute that I was kind of, you know, um, looking into this kind of stuff. And maybe they had entertained some of the ideas that I was sharing, for example, like, you know, how, uh, like, uh, the Pearl Harbor was an inside job, you know, that's kind of the history that we are not taught 
of all, you know, and that uh, started a war uh, and, you know, got everybody involved and these kind of things. And we don't really want to look into these type of things because the implication is really too big. And so I just went on this journey myself and because, you know, I can not make people look at the truth. I cannot force them, but I wanted to really uncover as much as I could. You know, I think the big stumbling block is when you take on something like Pearl Harbor or 9-11 in your subconscious, you know that if this is a put up, almost everything you know is questionable because when you logically begin to realize how many lives were affected, how many people may have died or been displaced and whatever event you're looking at. Um, and that cracks me up that you go to David Icke because there's always that great wall of China for everyone who realizes, starting to realize that it's a put up. Oh, you do? Well, here, we'll tell you how bad it goes. Did you know that everyone running the world is a lizard person? And they <laughs> try to take advantage of the wayward mind. Like, I thought the world was this way. Now I realize it's not even close. So what is possible? And they start you know, offering you all these lines that are completely bereft of common sense, but delivered in such a way that some people get hooked and they get hooked for good. But at what point do you begin to, when do you take up traveling? What, what's behind deciding to go out and travel? Well, uh, going back to Korea um, for me after university was just about uh, discovering about my past and kind of uh, tying up loose ends, you know, and just figuring out why things happened the way they did. And uh, uh, I realized where I came from. I, come, I came from like a political family. They were quite wealthy and there was like a long story of how <laughs> my father, who being the oldest son, in the family, um, uh, kind of, well, he, 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 he blundered his wealth and title and all this kind of stuff. And that's the reason why I became an orphan. And, and frankly speaking, I'm glad I'm happy that I became an orphan. It gave me the kind of freedom that I longed for. And so I can go into, uh, and live the kind of life that I am living right now. And, um, I've always been very much interested in the truth. You know, I didn't want any sugarcoating or anything. I wanted uh, the orphanage or anybody in my family just to tell me as things were as they were, you know, and as it happened. And I want to be, uh, I had to kind of accept, I had to accept the fact that uh, some things could be very hard to uh, um, realize, but that's okay. That's part of life, you know? So I was kind of toughening myself for that. And I think uncovering the truth of this reality is part of that similar process of, you know, uh, having this understanding that the reality was this way and maybe we were very comfortable with it. But then, you know, you got to take that Band-Aid off and realize, you know, there's something more going on. Well, it's interesting to me in the bullet points, you tie the beginning of your search to wake up from the bad dream you first list travel and you also list 9-11. And I swear to you, that's got to be 90 something percent of the people I have met. It's one of those two things that does it. So where do your travels begin? So after 10 years in South Korea, I did a variety of different work. I was teaching at private institutions. I owned a bar. Uh, I operated and owned a bar for about a year and a half. That's a whole nother story. But basically uh, I lost it. And uh, afterwards uh, I decided to uh, traditional Korean carpentry for about a year. So I did that for a little while. And then it was hard work, definitely manual labor, uh, didn't get paid a lot. And you work like 20, 21 days a month and you get four days off and then you go back to work. This kind of the schedule, very hard schedule and 
you know, it's a uh, very regimented, like uh, you wake up six in the morning, you have your breakfast and you start work at seven and seven to 12, you uh, work and 12 to one, you have lunch. And then usually we eat lunch quickly, take a nap and then go back to work at from one to six or seven. So it's like good 11, 12 hours of work a day uh, for a while. And I think that kind of helped me to realize uh, like the hard core Korean lifestyle, at least a part of it. And afterwards, um, my Korean had improved a little bit. And I saw an offering from a company where I went and got an interview. And um, I got a job at a corporation. Uh, they're called Hansor Education. And I worked there for three years, you know, wearing a suit and tie, working in front of a cubicle, uh, teaching English. It was very easy, uh, good money. But I, you know, I didn't think that that was going to be my life. And you know, they were uh, asking me if I wanted to work with for them for the rest of my life. And I was like, no, not really, because uh, I kind of want to see what's going on outside, uh, outside of Korea, around the world. I wanted to live a different type of lifestyle. And so I decided to uh, sell everything I had, turn it into a backpack. And uh, my journey began going to Japan. So it's one of my favorite places in the world. Go ahead, Jason. Well, Japan's right up your alley. So you guys probably have a lot of things to talk about here. What'd you think of Japan? Well, I, I love Japan. I uh, bought like a one month rail pass for Japan. So that allowed me to get on any kind of subway because, you know, they have a lot of different companies, private companies uh, with the railway system. And uh, I went and began my journey with my last like quote unquote official ultimate Frisbee tournament, um, more or less in Japan and at Dream Cup uh, in March, I think of 2000. 14 and that was near fuji mountain so i began my journey there and after the tournament um i found myself holy cow like i am <laughs> i am completely traveling in a country where i don't know the language at all and i don't know exactly what i'm doing so i i just started to book uh rooms where i could find like randomly wherever i could like uh, airbnb or guest house whatever and then wherever i could get a confirmed booking i went to <laughs> so <laughs> this is kind of how i began my journey i nothing planned just kind of going uh, with the wind when you set out to travel was it you saw the opportunity to get to japan or were you really ready to cut loose and go see what's out there at the time, I had a little bit of money and I invested in some stuff and I, I figured, you know, I can spend a little bit of money and just let's see what life takes me, you know, where where life takes me. And so I said, OK, I'm going to spend this money. And uh, I know Japan's expensive. And that's probably the reason why I decided to go to Japan right away and, and see what that is about. Uh, and I started traveling around Japan um, uh, and like my story kind of more or less began in Kyoto. Uh, in Kyoto, I met a Dutch lady who spoke Chinese. <laughs> and, uh, she, um, after her father passed away, she decided to learn Chinese because it was something very difficult and she wanted to put her focus onto something that was uh, very difficult to do. So she got a scholarship to learn Chinese. So she studied Chinese for a year and we met in Kyoto. Uh, at a random guest house. And that's another long story uh, of how we met. But uh, she invited me basically to come to China uh, with her and travel to China with her. So uh, she had already made plans to go to Indonesia uh, and other areas like Bali in her travel. But I, and I already made plans to go to, uh, but we both met in China and began our travels in China together. Okay. I think you cut for a second. You had made plans to go where? Uh, we had made plans to go to China together. 
okay, it sounded like the end you were going to say Tibet or Nepal. Um, it cut for a second. You know, it's interesting, the places that you're laying down, uh, they're all clearly ancient. When you get to Japan, certain parts of Japan, you know you're in a culture that's been around for a heck of a long time. And it's this, Japan is bizarre for the reason that you can go to a town where they're still making silk from, you know, worm eggs. And at the same time, you can go 50 miles the other way and it's completely tech modern. Uh, it's mm. this bizarre, you know, kind of route to the past, but firmly pushing into the future. But in the list here, you list China, Tibet, and Nepal. Those are often destinations, India, of course, where you currently are, where people who are spiritually searching go. So do you end up taking the China trip? Yes, uh, I after Japan, I traveled around maybe a couple more weeks in Japan, and uh, uh, my friend uh, she had to also travel, and then from there uh, I went to Mongolia and had a, like a nine day tour. So I was supposed to meet this Austrian guy whom I met in Kyoto as well. He said that he already had everything all figured out, so he had a jeep and driver. All I had to do is show up, and uh, he was. Uh, uh, going to be there and we were going to travel together. Uh, but I arrived and I realized that he was not there at the guest house and I emailed him and he told me, and he was, uh, uh, of a Russian and German descent. And that was back in 2004. And he had to go to Russia because he spoke German, Russian and English. And, uh, he worked for a, a newspaper agency, but his partner went missing because of the war, which is happening again right now. So uh, uh, I ended up uh, kind of stranded, not knowing what to do while I was in Mongolia. But luckily, I was introduced to another uh, Austrian guy who was a, a, a photographer for a different agency. And he just came back from a long trek of his own. And I told him, hey, I have a driver, I have a Jeep, uh, I want to go down to uh, Gobi Desert. Uh, it was all set up for us. You just have to uh, follow us, uh, follow me. It was just me and this guy. So he ended up coming with me and we had a good trip together down to Gobi Desert. <laughs> what did you do in the Gobi Desert? We just, I just, you know, there was a, uh, they took us to the edge and I climbed this like 300 meter uh, tall, like uh, dune. It took me like three hours to get up there. And then uh, I took some photos on the other side and then came back down. But that was about it. <laughs> well, what I know of the Gobi, I do know a little bit about the Gobi, but one of the things I know about the Gobi, uh, which came up in our No Dinosaurs show, is that that's magically where a lot of dinosaur bones are hidden. You know why? Because almost nobody can go where they're claiming they are. How long do you spend in China? I spent about two months uh, in China. So I flew from Mongolia to uh, near Shanghai. And my friend also flew to uh, Shanghai. We met up and we spent one day, one night there. And then we took a, a train from there to Kuming. And our journey began in Kuming. Uh, so we, we took a lot of buses and uh, uh, back roads uh, to Sichuan and Yunnan area. Because as you know, like Tibet, uh, after they were taken over, uh, they divided Tibet. Uh, so it's largely half the size of its original uh, Tibetan size. And then they added these uh, other parts of Tibet to Sichuan and Yunnan, the Western parts of China. And we were interested in going to these regions, the Tibetan regions, uh, where it's now part of China. You know, one of the things that's so striking, because for years, I studied spiritual traditions, and of course, you're going to come to Tibet after you do India, or maybe before you do India. But I was stunned when I began to realize what China had actually done to that place. Like, did you get near Lhasa? 
Yes, I, I went to Lhasa, but that was uh, towards after the after our trip together. Um, but yeah, a lot of the regions, you know, I've spoken to some of the monks there, and they used, they said that some monasteries they would have like two thousand or so monks, and then now they would only have about two hundred monks or so. So uh, there's huge dev- devastation that went on uh, with China and a lot of the monasteries and the religion that was involved in those regions. Well, one of the things is if you were in the vicinity of Lhasa, I had never realized because when they show you Lhasa, it's always about the Patala Palace, right? That's what they show you. But mm-hmm. when when you pan back to what China did, there's a red light district in front of the, the palace. Um, they put in that rail. What was funny was so many people from China proper had a hard time with the altitude in Lhasa. And it was also a problem apparently for childbirth. And they started doing all these incentives, anything they could do to get Chinese people in there. But did you witness the kind of whole wholesale Las Vegasing of Lhasa? Yes. Uh, I took a train, I think from Xining uh, in China, it was like a day and a half uh, train ride. And I arrived in Lhasa. When I got there, they had uh, soldiers right from the train station and they were guarding with machine guns and they were very strict. I mean, you could not uh, even take photos of them and they would be pointing at you and start screaming at you. Uh, <laughs> and I spent maybe one or two days in Lhasa. Um, I, what I do remember is like right in front of the Potella, as you mentioned, uh, you know, there was like Adidas or Nike, uh, all these uh, Western shops are kind of there. A lot of bars um, right across the street uh, near there. There's a big park that's open. It's very Chinese, you know, with their uh, statues and flags. There's Chinese flags everywhere. Like any of the uh, important buildings, they have Chinese flags flying up. And also they have uh, these, uh, what are they called? They're like uh, some kind of um, gate. You have to go through like a metal detector type gate. And what they're looking for is that anybody carrying lighters, they were really strict about lighters, that you could not take lighters into certain areas. And, and I, I was asking about that. And why are they so strict about lighters? It's because they were afraid that people would douse themselves with gasoline and light themselves on fire, you know, which has had which had occurred in some of the places as a form of protest against the Chinese. Yeah, that was a big deal, especially uh, in the 60s. That supposedly went on. It was aired heavily uh, in the Vietnam people emoliating themselves. But you see, I think what a lot of people miss about Tibet and what it meant to the world and what it demonstrates about our world now is when it happened, it is claimed that some of the highest ups in Tibet actually knew the president of the United States and reached out for help. The United States did nothing. Look who invaded them. And look at that country now. Do you see what's happened here? You want to talk about the rise of darkness, which we, the United States, has been wholly enveloped with for Lord knows how long. That shifts to China in a big way when China gets to be on the ascendant as it is now, as they're moving all the manufacturing into this country, as they're bringing Olympics in. It's the dark heart rising. This dark heart is what mowed down Tibet. Tibet was the keeper or trying to be the keeper of an ancient time, what was learned in India. And I know you're going to get to Nepal, but for me, these are spiritual centers that have, it's unfathomable what they could teach the world if the world was ready to hear it. And by the way, Japan's no different. When I went there, the one of the first things I bumped into was Shintoism, which I was aware of, um, but it started because I saw two rocks in the ocean that were married. That's what started me looking at it. But you get into the idea, and, and here's, here's one way to know if things are worth 
thinking about as valuable. You read Rudolf Steiner and he's telling you about elementals and all these things. And you're thinking, how can I ever try to figure out if this is just somebody talking or there's a reality here? One of the ways is in the Shinto religion of Japan, they have kami spirits. It's in everything. It's in a rock. It's in a pebble. It's in a tree. It's exactly what Steiner is saying in a Western way. But I'm just pointing out that right now, uh, this kind of heart of darkness rise everywhere. Tibet was the epicenter, one of the first epicenters of what was going to rise in our era. And I know that was a mouthful, but is there anything else to add about Tibet? Well, I, you know, I remember reading something from the Dalai Lama and Dalai Lama was saying that uh, Tibet was quite close country. And in some ways, even though the, the horrendous nature of what had happened, uh, China has brought Tibet into popularity. So like a lot of people became interested in Tibet and the freedom of Tibet and the religions uh, and the knowledge that was uh, uh, kind of kept hidden there for a good reason, because people don't really value the truth, but the people who do value them, they tend to keep them and they're uh, guarding them. And these uh, monasteries and Tibet itself were the guardians of this truth. A lot of that came from India as well. You know, he's an amazing man. I've actually seen him live on a number of occasions, but my current view on that is anyone at that level, you play or you don't play. Um, You do what you're supposed to do. If you get too far out of line, you're just going to be replaced, removed, whatever. And that is the Dalai Lama. And one of the most eye-opening times, I remember when he said what what you said. In other words, he's telling you, well, we did get Nike in front of the Patala Palace and we're putting a Burger King in, um, you know, and our people are now second-rate citizens. So he's he's saying what he's saying, partially to keep the peace, but he has to. Um, The other big thing is when he announced, oh, my doctor told me I have to eat meat now because I'm not healthy. You can see what's going on. I've read enough of Tibetan culture and spiritual traditions to know what eating meat meant in that time in that place. So what I'm pointing out is you don't hold the position anywhere in this world, as far as I'm concerned, uh, unless you're in line. No, I agree with you. I think a lot of people can be compromised. Just going back to like China, I think China is uh, an ideal model for the elites, you know, they, they like what China is doing with this uh, social credit system and the surveillance system. And I think they would love it if that uh, a model became something common to everywhere else in the world. Oh, they're working on it. They're working on it. Yeah, my, my view of all that uh, has shifted over the last, I don't know, five or six years. I don't know if anyone here <laughs> has studied the so-called war in heaven, which seeks to explain how evil came into our world. And the more that I look into these ideas, and recently I went over Steiner's version of Rudolf Steiner's version of these ideas. Previously, uh, Light of Egypt, there's a number of books that have differing versions of the idea of how come there's bad things happen here? Why, why is there evil in our world? And the whole tale, uh, which the movie Michael, which we broke down, by the way, so the reason I broke it down, if you see the Archangel Michael and the bull, you're looking at a version of the fallen angel, the war in heaven story. And it appears to me that the heart of darkness, as I call it now, that's rising, those people are different than you and I. And this is why. And I think the reason they are different is because they have no eye. Uh, And there's a lot that could be explained there. But, you know, you're right in this place that basically erupted, knocked out 
one of the last truly spiritual places. And I don't care what you think. Um, it, it's like Muslims. Those people stop and pray five times a day. You know how far beyond that is almost anything we see in this country. But what we hear is, oh, well, they believe in all this nonsense. Well, Tibet is ancient and it had to go. And the people that had to let it go was the United States and the heart of darkness rising next to the heart of darkness that is the United States. Um, they did nothing to stop it. It was planned. And I think these personages and the small epicenters are slightly different beings by blood than we are. But anyhow, I'm off on a tangent. Well, here we are at the top of the hour. What would you like to leave everyone with, Nachiketa, so they'll want to come and hear the rest of the story? Well, I would like to speak more about the awakening process and uh, Flat Earth, uh, Mandela Effect. <laughs> I know it's a kind of a controversial stuff to uh, get into, but uh, I feel very comfortable to talk about more. Uh, uh, and, and, and this idea of evil is fascinating for me and like what is it and where it comes from this is also very interesting to look into because we understand that it exists and we're in the process of like you know we're all playing a role here so um yeah let's get into those type of topics you know these are important ideas and they're particularly important in our time if anyone's dealing with what's going on in the world at some point if they logically go at it they're going to say how is it that there's so much that I consider evil, that I could never participate in? How can I be so different from what I know is going on? And I'll drop a couple titles on the other side, uh, versions that I'm aware of that do a very good job of speaking to the Western mind, uh, the, the United States mind to be specific uh, about how this happened. And the thing is, is it logically works if you accept that you could get a breakdown of how something works scientifically. But anything that is broken down scientifically can spiritually be broken down. And so that's a bit like saying, well, we've learned from science that the conservation of energy means this, that, and the other thing. And then you can hear a spiritual person say, yes, that's correct. But there is anytime you have energy, this polarity idea is provably true. And they're two complete different ways of thinking about a thing. But I think it's important now because the dark heart that is rising, it's real. And it's here and it's got more power seemingly than we had ever been aware. But here's the catch. It doesn't have any power. It fools its way into all of this. It's a sleight of hand. And I'll drop some titles that'll help people get there. But anyhow, do you want to give out any contact of any kind or do you just want to show up in comments? Nachiketa? Uh, I am happy to uh, just share my contact in the comments section if people are interested. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, if you do it in hour one, it can become a bit overwhelming. Anyhow, there's hour one of episode 393. We're going to get into a lot more when we come back. And we chose to do an episode like this because very rarely do we stop, look next to us at the people that are just common beings like I am, like Jason is, and say, hey, what's your story? How did you get to where you are? And part of the idea here is to build community. We have to get rid of bigotry so quick. We have to go find the person we like the least and give them a hug right now. It's on and it's on for real. And what that means is we're going to have a bad time, but how long will the bad time be? And I'll say it again. There is no power. This is all sleight of hand. And for people who wake up enough to recognize that, 
maybe we won't have to play this wicked game for such a long, long time. Anyhow, episode or hour one of 393. Uh, the second hour is for members at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.